close your eyes. If you're driving or engaged in another activity prohibiting you from doing so safely, then imagine that your eyes are closed. It's dark, isn't it? Like a black curtain has been drawn across the world. Now, imagine navigating your life this way. Navigating life without sight. It's a daunting notion, and yet, those of us lucky enough to have our vision can easily take it for granted. Which means that many of us rarely consider the enormous obstacles and risks that innovators throughout history have faced in order to better understand and preserve this extraordinary sense. Welcome to Stroke of Genius, a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role that intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality. I'm your host, Lauren Hutchinson. I'm a historian of science and a technology reporter, and I'm fascinated by humankind's ability to innovate and advance the world we live in. On today's episode, we open up stories from the history of eye surgery. We'll hear moments of improbable discovery, examine the extraordinary life of a cultural pioneer, and gaze into the not-so-distant future, where eye surgeries might be as simple as upgrading a smartphone. A cataract is a condition in which the natural lens of the eye becomes obscured, as if, say, you're perpetually staring through woolly, grey fog. Over time, people suffering from cataracts begin to experience disorienting and demoralising effects. Blurred vision, double vision and faded colours are among the early symptoms. Left untreated, cataracts can cause total blindness. Amazingly, as far back as the 6th century BC, there's documentation for a method of cataract surgery called couching. It's not as luxurious as the term suggests. A surgeon would cut open the patient's eye, without anesthesia, of course, then insert a thin rod to dislodge the cloudy lens, leaving that lens to float around the eye, like a piece of minuscule driftwood, hopefully without blocking too much light. As you can probably guess, the operation was torturous for the patient, and the success rate was dismal, often leaving patients worse than before. Millennia passed with minimal cataract advancements, until the 20th century. If you go back to the early 1900s, cataract surgery was pretty archaic. If you look at um, the procedure, it was called an intracapsular cataract surgery. And essentially, uh, the idea of intracapsular cataract surgery was removing the lens in mass, so in one piece, and uh, no attempt was made to replace the cloudy lens or the cataract with any prosthetic device. What that meant was people who had cataract surgery were relegated to wearing really thick, what we call Coke bottle glasses. And while that did provide them with some level of visual function, the amount of distortion from those thick glasses really uh, plagued people for years. That's Dr. Gary Wirtz. I'm a cataract and refractive surgeon at Commonwealth Eye Surgery in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm also an associate professor of ophthalmology at the University of Kentucky and the chief medical officer of Omega Ophthalmics. Dr. Wirtz, who has been known to quote the Nobel Prize winning playwright George Bernard Shaw, also holds more than 20 patents and is an expert in the history of eye operations. During our conversation, he told us about a breakthrough in cataract surgery that emerged from horrific circumstances in World War II. Uh, Sir Harold Ridley at the time was a civilian ophthalmologist who was um, brought in to operate on a Royal Air Force pilot, and uh, the pilot's windshield had been had exploded and shattered, and uh, his eyes were riddled with polymethyl macacrylate, we can just call it PMMA. And as, as time went on, he did, I think, a series of 19 operations on this Royal Air Force pilot. 
And what he realized was, unlike the other patients he had treated who had glass shrapnel in their eyes, the body reacted very, very violently to the glass shrapnel. The PMMA shrapnel in this pilot's eyes, the body was not reacting to it. So he he made the assumption, correctly so, that this material was specifically inert to the eye. The eye did not react to it in the ways other materials would cause inflammation and reaction. From that discovery or that hunch, he built the first intraocular lens with the help of Rayner, which is an optics company back in the time. They actually still are around making intraocular lenses. And in 1949, actually November 29, 1949, uh, Ridley inserted the first intraocular lens into any human. And the rest is sort of history. Despite Ridley's momentous breakthrough, cataract surgery remained harrowing for patients. Bringing somebody into the hospital, admitting them to the hospital, making a, an incision that basically opened up half of the eyeball, um, removed the cataract, implanting a lens, sewing it up, and then putting the patient um, with sandbags on either side of their head and allowing them not to move their head you know, for a week and then in, in discharging them from the hospital a week later, I think most ophthalmologists could see that if we could have a minimally invasive surgery, not only would we be uh, much gentler on the eye, much more gentler on the eye, you know, we could potentially get patients in and out the same day and beyond that have um, happier patients, quicker surgeries, less risk of complications. Fortunately, a veritable Renaissance man from Brooklyn, New York, named Charles Kelman, was obsessed with solving this very problem. Dr. Charles Kelman was a very colorful and interesting figure in ophthalmology, but he was this interesting comedian, entertainer, saxophone player, um, and also an inventor. Uh, Walter Isaacson says that the greatest inventors usually are at the cross-sections of science and humanities. Here we have Dr. Charles Kelman, who is this um, really fascinating entertainer and brilliant ophthalmologist and inventor. So he had a grant to try to develop a technology that would allow ophthalmologists to do cataract surgery through a very, very small or keyhole incision. Not only are we talking about the invention of microsurgery, we're actually talking about the invention of something that would really revolutionize general surgery down the road. Dr. Kalman was almost to the end of his grant money and was really getting nowhere with a number of techniques that he was trying, devices that vibrated and rotated, and he was trying all sorts of different techniques and really not having much luck. When he was sitting in his dentist chair and getting his, his teeth cleaned, they were using this ultrasound device to clean his teeth. This was his eureka moment. He realized that if this machine could uh, polish off the, the plaque from his teeth, uh, the same technology could be applied to using something to dissolve a cataract inside the eye through a very small incision. As the story goes, he actually got up from the dentist chair almost mid-cleaning with with the uh, doily still around his neck and ran out of the office (laughs) and came back with an eye, I think a a cadaver eye, later that day and uh, performed his first cadaver trial showing that there was a a proof of concept there. So obviously Dr. Kelman was this brilliant man who was able to draw on a lot of outside ideas and outside technologies to come up with what's probably the most disruptive and positive change in, in the history of ophthalmology. But the path from Dr. Kalman's dentist chair epiphany to his major success was neither short nor easy. I think it would have taken someone who is a stand-up comedian to develop the thick skin it would take to try to change a field like ophthalmology because he was regarded as a charlatan. He was professionally discredited. Every possible negative thing you could ever imagine happening to somebody 
uh, professionally what happened to him until um, the technology was really proven to be far superior to what was done in the past. So he had to have a tremendously thick skin. He had to believe in himself and he had to uh, just stick with it. Thanks to his determination, this year alone, more than 20 million cataract procedures will be performed around the world. The majority still utilise Dr. Kalman's method, patented in 1967, phaco emulsification. Throughout his career, Kalman ended up earning more than 70 patents from a wide range of surgical innovations, and even a device for systematically placing a golf ball on a tee. A patent holder and inventor himself, Dr. Gary Wirtz has some practical and strategic advice for those embarking on a similar path as Dr. Kalman's. No one really has a playbook for this. Um, because each invention is going to have its own twists and turns. And the first steps to any idea that you would have is filing a provisional patent. Um, It's something that is not um, overly hard. It it could cost some money if you hire an attorney. But a provisional patent is something that is really uh, the most important first step when you're trying to uh, decide if you even want to move forward. But much like with our vision, protections for intellectual property are something we can easily take for granted. And we rarely consider what the world would be like without them. We asked Dr. Wirtz to help us envision such a place. Without patent law, I don't think there'd be as much innovation. Um, The reason I say that is the road to success or the road to eventually commercializing a device uh, is long. And it requires people to invest and believe in an idea. And it requires um, people to be uh, with you through the long middle where you're trying new things and approaches that some are working, some aren't working. Without the potential of a return on their investment, what would happen is the original company that's trying to bring something forward would do so. They would go through all the, the long, hard years and eventually get to the end where they find the solution that everyone has been waiting for. And without intellectual property that, that protects that idea, All the other companies can just basically wait until the solution is found and then copy um, the one that the the company that comes up with the solution. Um, And and what that would do is is that would de-incentivize innovation. It would basically incentivize companies waiting around for someone to do something new and exciting and then immediately um, invest all the resources in copying that technology and essentially um, driving the original innovator out of business because they've spent all their capital on the research and development. Which, in turn, would deter young inventors from ever embarking on that winding and steep, astonishing journey towards their place in the history of eye surgery. Dr. Patricia Bath is an ophthalmologist, inventor and humanitarian. She enters our history of eye surgery as the inventor of the laser phaco probe. The laser phaco probe, for which Bath holds four patents, is a revolutionary surgical device which uses a laser to vaporise cataracts through a tiny one millimetre incision in the patient's cornea. At the time of its invention, in the mid-1980s, the laser phaco probe was at the cutting edge of new technologies in cataract surgery. Its development epitomised the words of T.S. Eliot when he said, Only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. In reaching for and grasping the future, Dr. Bath established a foundation upon which numerous methods thereafter have been built. But the laser phaco probe stands as just one of the many accomplishments constellating Dr. Bath's seminal career. 
She was the first black resident in ophthalmology at New York University, the first woman faculty member at Jules Stein Eye Institute at UCLA, the first woman to head a department at the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine, and the laser phaco probe distinguished her as the first African-American woman to receive a patent for a medical purpose. If that wasn't enough, Dr. Bath also co-founded the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness, where she established the concept of community ophthalmology. Their driving principle is that eyesight is a fundamental human right. Amongst various other initiatives, she trained and mobilized volunteers to visit senior centers and daycare programs to screen for eye problems. Through these efforts, thousands received treatments for ailments that might otherwise have gone undiagnosed. Still, to fully understand the impact of Dr. Bass' career and the significance of her accomplishments, we must step back and employ a more panoramic perspective. To assist us, we turn to author and historian Dr. Janice Adams. My name is Janice Adams. I am a journalist and historian by training, and now I'm host and producer of the Janice Adams Show for Public Radio, and which we produce out of WJFF in Jeffersonville, New York. Like Patricia Bath, Dr. Adams is no stranger to being the first at something. A pioneer in the truest sense of the word, she was amongst the first four children who desegregated New York City public schools in the roaring, turbulent heart of the American Civil Rights Movement. We asked Dr. Adams to paint a picture of the time and place where Dr. Bath grew up. She is born in 1942, so the United States is at war. World War II is taking place. It is a time when the United States is also at war with itself because it is very much a segregated country. But when we talk about segregation, a lot of people just say, well, it just means separation. No, it's really a system of violence and intimidation. And it is an outgrowth of the era of enslavement with some of the most unbelievable brutality and violence perpetrated on people of color. And it's the quintessential, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? But race was not the lone barrier Dr. Bath faced. She was also a young female who was interested in science. She is born into an era where women are being forced out of the workplace. Those who came into their own as metaphorical Rosie the Riveters are being pushed back into the home and given instinct (laughs) as they are calling and really being forced to be mothers over career women in an effort to make the society not only dominant and give it racial dominance, but gender dominance of males as well. Taking this into account, while Dr. Bath achieved an illustrious career in ophthalmology, If we fanatically focus here, we risk minimizing what are arguably her most revolutionary contributions to the world. Dr. Bath is more than a technological innovator. She's a cultural trailblazer, a pioneer in earning recognition for one's innovations, for being acknowledged and respected. What this issue of being able to claim credit is even a human rights issue. You're being able to claim your own right to your own life to be human and to excel and contribute to the world to the best of your abilities. Think of what it means really to the world. Our world has so much that it needs in every field of endeavor, the sciences, the medicine, there's so much we don't know. 
There's so much we don't know about life and humanity. And maybe some of the reasons we don't know it is because we keep trying to put down some of the people who could lift us all up. While throughout the 1980s, Dr. Bath was on the Pacific coast making advancements in cataract surgery, on the Atlantic coast, a talented physicist was experimenting with lasers. His name James is James J. J. Wynn. The middle name is Jeffrey. Uh, my father's father was a prize fighter, and so he named me after Jim Jeffries, the heavyweight champion of the world. Though Dr. Wynn, who prefers to be called Jim, is now in his eighth decade, his youthful curiosity and scientific zeal remain, especially when he discusses his work. Jim is the program manager for local education outreach at IBM's Thomas J. Watson Research Center in Yorktown Heights, New York. He is also a leading expert in laser science and is currently using lasers to treat skin disorders. But where he most strikingly arrives in the history of eye surgery is by leading the team that discovered the foundational principles that make LASIK possible. LASIK is a vision-correcting eye surgery in which a laser reshapes the cornea. It can correct nearsightedness, farsightedness, and astigmatism. When I was a kid, I used magnifying glass. I knew that light had power, and I would shine it on wood and set the wood on fire, and I would also fry ants. I have to say it was animal rights activists wouldn't like that. So I knew light had energy or power, and uh, in a sense I was prepared for the laser when it came into being. If you surmise that Jim's treatment of ants was indicative of a misspent youth, you'd be mistaken. As a high school student, he excelled in math and science. To this day, he cites his high school physics teacher as a major influence on his career. There's nobody more important in the world than a great teacher, and I happen to have the right guy at the right moment. His name was Mr. Love. I, I love him. But Jim's destiny to explore the frontiers of laser surgery wasn't yet set in stone. He had another passion, tennis, which he has played his entire life. As an adolescent, he demonstrated enough promise to weigh a professional career. His course clarified, however, on a warm day when he walked onto the court with his racket and on the opposite side of the net stood a future sports legend. I'd lost a match to Arthur Ashe in the summer of 62. Arthur was kind. He gave me a game. At 6-love, 5-love, he hit all of my serves into the net, so I took a game from Arthur Ashe. But, but next summer, I'd get a, better get a different job. So the summer of 63, I started working with lasers, and I've been doing that ever since. Thanks to his defeat against Arthur Ashe, Jim ended up at Harvard, where, in 1969, he earned his PhD in applied physics. Soon after, he accepted a dream job at IBM. On our visit, Jim led us on a tour of the massive crescent-shaped Thomas J. Watson Research Center, which occupies a private tract 40 miles north of New York City. If, rather than chocolate, Willy Wonka had constructed a factory for engineering and scientific advancement, the Thomas J. Watson Research Center might be it. But inside his laboratory is where Jim seemed to arrive back home. It was in this very lab during the 1970s that Dr. Wynne assembled an all-star team of cross-disciplinary scientists who would forever change eye surgery. So I joined this uh, quantum electronics group. I got promoted again, and Dr. Srinivasan, Sri, Dr. Rangaswamy Srinivasan, photochemist, he joined my group as manager of photochemistry. So I had chemists as well as physicists, so I changed the name of my group to Laser Physics and Chemistry. Then I got probably my most important good luck <laughs> was I decided to buy an eczema laser. Though Jim was unsure of the potential uses for this new laser, 
he encouraged his team to test it in whatever manner they saw fit. This is where Rangaswamy Srinivasan, or Sri for short, stepped centre stage into the story. Sri originally thought to use the laser for etching polymers, which are used in manufacturing semiconductors, but his notion morphed when the team began brainstorming ways to test the laser on organic materials. The breakthrough was the day after Thanksgiving in 1981, November 27, 1981. Sri brought his Thanksgiving leftovers into the lab, turkey bone with some cartilage on it, smooth cartilage. And he went to the laser and turned it on, and he then irradiated that cartilage, and he made a very clean incision. No, I didn't know Sri was going to bring in uh, the turkey cartilage. We had been talking for months about what sample would we uh, irradiate besides our fingernails and our hair. We were afraid to shine it on our own skin. But now we had to see, was this different than if we used another laser? Was this a new type of surgery? So I took that sample into the lab where I was working with a high-power laser that emitted light in the green. And I irradiated that turkey cartilage next to the place where the clean incision was, and all I could do was burn and char it. And when I looked at that under the microscope, that was the aha moment. We had a new form of laser surgery. Jim and his team immediately filed their invention disclosure with an IBM patent attorney. I consider Jack Stanlin, who was the patent attorney for us, he's like the fourth inventor. Then Jim and his team returned to the laboratory to work that they had long avoided, work that would require them to take a cringe-inducing risk. First, the next step after we had um, submitted our invention disclosure was what's going to happen if we shined it on our own live skin? We had been afraid to do that before. So um, we three of us agreed that we would hold some part of our own skin in front of the laser. I went first. I closed my eyes and I put my pinky out in front of the laser beam. And the laser's firing five, ten times a second. Zap, 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 zap. So I hold my pinky in front of the laser beam. No heat, no pain. It felt like uh, if I blow a puff of air on my finger, the pressure of the air is pushing. That's what it felt like. That's another aha moment. (laughs) This is going to work. From there, progress moved quickly. After working on the patent for another year, Jim Wynn and his team published their findings in a journal distributed to the attendees at 1983's conference for lasers and electro-optics in Baltimore. At this same conference, Sri delivered a lecture, which serendipitously was attended by two ophthalmologists, including Dr. Stephen Trokel. One of these two ophthalmologists, Steve Trokel, got in touch with Srinivasan, and he came up here to the lab with with a nucleated calf eyes. And uh, Sri and his technical assistant, Bodil Brerin, working with Trokel, made clean incisions in the cornea using the eczema laser. Trokel took the eyeballs back to Columbia, harvested the tissue, stained it, looked at it. Beautiful, clean incisions in that cornea. That paper, when it was published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology, it showed these results, and that made the whole ophthalmology community aware that here was a tool that could cut into the cornea and leave clean uh, incisions with no evidence of collateral damage. Now, what the ophthalmologists know which we didn't know, we IBMs didn't know, is that cornea really heals very well. You think, oh my God, my eyes scratch, I'll go blind. But your cornea is virtually the fastest healing tissue in your body. So it was that that sort of combination of the ophthalmologists coming with eyeball knowledge, coming together with us with the laser knowledge, that led to this work, which when published, launched the era to develop a way to reshape the cornea. And out of that came photoreflective keratectomy and LASIK. LASIK eventually became one of the most successful surgical operations in human history, providing the gift of clear sight to millions around the world, 
including a relative of someone at the political summit. When we won the National Medal of Technology and Innovation uh, from President Obama in uh, February 1st, 2013, after all the medalists, each one of us had a private photo session with the president with our immediate family. And my daughter, Alexis, asked President Obama, do you know anybody who's had laser refractive surgery? And he smiled and he said, yes, my wife, Michelle. For me, that was the high point of the day. So, now, here we are in 2018. Thanks to the advancements of numerous inventors across history, we have cataract and LASIK surgeries preserving and improving the sight of countless individuals, all while being nearly painless and taking mere minutes to complete. How far we've travelled since the ancient method of couching. With this in mind, one might wonder if there's anywhere left to explore, or assume that we've already navigated to the boundaries of eye surgery. But Dr. Gary Wirtz would disagree. In fact, he's on the verge of a breakthrough that could cause a tectonic shift for the future of eye surgery. I was sort of, you know, having these these uh, daydreaming sessions, I guess. I was on an airplane and you know, I realized that what we do in cataract surgery is we remove this very thick lens and we replace it with this very, very thin piece of acrylic or silicone. And there's really this form follows function um, you know, precept in biology that the closer we can approximate the form uh, of a biological structure, the better we can improve its function. And I realized we had this really big mismatch between the natural cataract that actually is, is voluminous and fills up that capsular space and the intraocular lens that we replace it with. And, that, and the reason for that is, is obvious. Obviously, we didn't want to have something that was really thick and, and bulky going into the eye because it would require a large incision. The problem was we became so focused on small and thin is better, we forgot the fact that maybe having something that would fill the capsular space would actually provide some advantages. So um, I really had this aha moment that maybe we need to think backwards and think differently about um, the way we should be creating a prosthetic lens. And uh, my theory was that if we can fill up the capsular space or at least keep it open in its natural conformation, there's a number of downstream advantages that that might have. But Dr. Wirtz, like all of history's great inventors, wasn't content to stop at the idea. He rolled up his sleeves and worked towards its invention. The Omega Gemini refractive capsule is a device implanted in the eye's capsular space and is capable of housing intraocular lenses and their replacements, receiving medicines and, as science fiction-esque as it sounds, will eventually be able to facilitate the integration of augmented reality with natural sight. So just like every couple of years we all change in our iPhone for something that is newer and better with better technology, I feel like with our vision being so intimately linked to our enjoyment of life, I think as a patient and as a surgeon, I want the opportunity to give my patients access to enhanced technology as we know it's going to become more and more improved over time. So I think what we're going to look at is in the past, cataract surgery was a uh, one-and-done procedure where you made one decision and you lived with it the rest of your life. I think we'll look back on that thinking, wow, that was really archaic. Um, hopefully in the future, we will be able to continuously uh, fine-tune and improve our patients as, their, as new technology improves and as their needs change. With the thrilling advancements in which Dr. Wirtz has been involved, he's no stranger to how intellectual property works. His company employs two patent attorneys, and he holds 25 patents over several countries. He credits his ability to share his invention with us today to the fact that he's done his patent homework. 
as an inventor and as an ophthalmologist, um, you know, I came up with an idea and I realized that rather than um, talking about it openly to colleagues, rather than posting something online or um, sort of having an f- open forum of what do you all think about this idea, uh, I made the very strategic decision early on to really not share that idea with anyone and to hire a patent attorney. And that was probably one of the most uh, important decisions uh, professionally that I've ever made. Of course, this level of discretion and sacrifice can be difficult for creative minds. If you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to 100 other things. So if you want to pursue an idea and actually um, make it happen, you have to be prepared to shut down those creative juices and shut down um, all the other good ideas that are going to come your way. Because inventors tend to have great ideas all the time. For them, Dr. Wirtz has encouragement. Every inventor is simultaneously 100% sure that their, that their device or their idea will be a commercial success and also 100% unsure of how to take it from concept all the way through uh, to, to the final stages. And that's okay. That tension is probably uh, what prevents a lot of people from moving forward because they have the idea, they see the unmet need, and they feel like they have the solution to that, but they just don't know how to go forward with that. Don't let that dissuade you from taking the first step. That's it for today's episode on the history of eye surgery. Thanks to Dr. Gary Wirtz, Dr. Janice Adams, and Dr. Jim Wynn and all the innovators and inventors listening out there. I'm Lauren Hutchinson, and thanks for tuning into this episode of Stroke of Genius. This podcast is produced by At Will Media on behalf of Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.